Hey everybody, JC here, and welcome to uh, the podcast Sermon Extra. Uh, This is a new thing I'm starting, I'm going to kind of test out, um, to kind of go along with uh, the sermons, Preaching Sundays. Uh, This week it was Titus, we started a new series in the book of Titus, looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Paul's introduction, and you know, just the limitations of a sermon as a form of communication, it means, you know, the things you're studying and thinking about, you can never say at all. Um, And you want to format it in a certain way to have a coherent message. Uh, But there's always things that you wish you could have talked about, wish you could have kind of delved deeper into. And that's what this sermon extra is for. So in the sermon extra today, we're just going to be looking at uh, a few of the different concepts that came up in this introductory section of Titus and some of the connections in the book. And so I'm just going to be talking about this. Um, No major uh, organization or format here, so we'll just see how it goes. Hopefully some of these thoughts uh, will be helpful to you and will uh, be conducive to your own application of this text and uh, just getting it deeper into your life. Kind of the the summary of the message was uh, that in light of the false teachers in Crete, how Paul wanted to introduce himself and his ministry in this letter as an authoritative ministry of the Lord, that he is an apostle. That is, he has a commission from Christ to preach the message, the message that was hidden but is now revealed. He was commissioned by Christ to be a preacher of the gospel. And so everything he does, he says, is for the faith of God's elect people. He's a servant of God for them. And he's seeking their knowledge of the truth, that they would know the truth, which accords with godliness and ends in eternal life. And so just first, the one first thing I wanted to zoom in on is just this theme where Paul says that he's pursuing the faith of God's elect, that they would grow in their faith, grow in their relationship with Christ, their living out of these gospel truths, um, which is the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And I just want to take some time and consider this theme of the truth that accords with godliness as a major theme in the book of Titus. And we'll look at kind of how this plays out. So he says in verse 1, it's for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Uh, That word accords can be translated uh, or can be considered in different ways. It's a bit ambiguous in the Greek. So the idea might be um, the the sort of truth that... um, it fits with godliness, that, you know, this shape of the truth, it fits the same shape as godliness. They, they, they harmonize with each other. Or it could be taken as the knowledge of the truth that produces godliness, that true knowledge will produce a truly godly life. And this is kind of setting up this theme that then Titus is going to pick up on. And so, in contrast to the false teachers who didn't know the truth properly and didn't have godly lives, we saw how uh, Titus is going to be concerned with those two things, with sound doctrine and good works, or the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And so we see even as he's appointing elders, the qualifications for elders are so um, kind of godly, good works, character-based, that they're to be above reproach, um, not... um, not arrogant or quick-tempered, not drunkards or violent or greedy, but they're to be hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That is, they're to be men who have been so shaped by the knowledge of the truth that godliness and good works are evident in their lives. 
And in order to promote that in the congregation, they're called in uh, Titus 1, 9, to hold firm to that trustworthy word as taught, that is that knowledge of the truth, so that they can give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So their lifestyle is to be one that is the example of godliness resulting from knowing the truth, but they're called specifically to guard the truth, to promote the truth, because it's as they do that that the foundation is maintained so that the congregation can grow in good works. The sort of godliness and good works that Titus is then instructed to talk to them about in chapter 2. And he begins in chapter 2, verse 1, saying, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, so now he's moving on to not just holding sound doctrine, but to teach this godliness, to teach the good works that accord with sound doctrine, that fit the sound doctrine, that, that go along with it. And this is where then he looks at the household. Um, he looks at what is fitting in light of sound doctrine, for the older men to be like, for them to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love. He talks to the older women, the young women, the young men. And it's interesting, the one term or phrase that pops up repeatedly in each of these groups, and with the elders as well, is the idea of self-control. That one of the primary results of a true gospel knowledge, one of the primary markers of growth in godliness and good works is a self-control where the worldly passions of your flesh, the passions that waged in the culture in Crete and in our culture, passions for just um, immoderate use of food and drink, gluttony, laziness, sensuality, drunkenness, wild partying, all these fleshly indulgences, it takes a control of yourself. It's a mind renewed in the word of God that is able to say no to these worldly passions and to say yes to godliness and to self-control. And that's what he'll talk about actually in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And so these good works, they accord with the true doctrine, but they also in verse 10, it says that they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That when he's talking specifically to slaves, that when they live in a godly way, I mean, everything, they can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so when we compare godly living with the knowledge of the truth or sound doctrine, there's a twin function that these godliness, that this godliness and good works um, function as. So the first thing is that godliness, it sort of verifies the sound doctrine, that the, the way you know that you've been living in light of sound doctrine is that you're living godliness. So there's a, there's a self-verification that I know I know God because I'm keeping his commands. But the second one I think is really interesting, that it says that these good works adorn the doctrine. That is, uh, they make it beautiful. So if you think of adorning yourself, um, you know, uh, Isaiah talks about a bride adorning herself for her wedding day. It's basically putting on things that make you look beautiful to the world. They enhance the beauty that's there and really uh, show it forth. And good works, when the world is looking on, they show how beautiful true godliness is. Because living according to reality, living according to the truth, the way God has designed this world to work, should result in lives that are the most blessed the most joyful, the most peaceful, the most kind. And when we live in the way God calls us to, 
which is really living like Christ, that's when the doctrine is um, witnessed of in a beautiful way to the world. The doctrine that we profess is adorned with our lives. And you know, that's something that uh, unbelievers charge Christians as. They see ungodliness in their lives and they say, why would I want to believe your doctrine? It seems to produce hate and anger and judgment. But we ought to live in a way that attracts people to the gospel by our love. And even if they condemn what we teach, they ought not to be able to condemn how we behave. And our behavior ought to be a great draw to them. And so we're called to um, adorn the doctrine as well as live in a way that accords with the doctrine. And after all, this is what we've been saved to. And this is another theme of just how this works with the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us, that is to buy us back from lawlessness, okay, from breaking a life breaking God's law, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Okay, so he rescues us from sin, purifies and renews us to live a new way, and it says to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. Christ's intention in salvation is to see a people zealous for for good works. And so Paul's ministry to build up the faith of the elect necessarily is going to involve the knowledge of the truth, but also the godliness that corresponds to the truth, because Christ saved a people to be zealous for good works. This is the theme of the book of Titus. And again, we see he he outlines the gospel in chapter 3, and then comes in chapter 8, and he says once again that this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's quite the call. Careful devotion to good works. That's what God wants for his people. That's the good works that flow out of the life of faith, that correspond to the gospel. So that's the connection we see throughout this whole book of the knowledge of the truth, sound doctrine, that accords with godliness. And if you remember, we talked about just that illustration of food. If you eat healthy food, it results in health in your body. If you eat poison or motor oil or unhealthy food, that results in ill health. So that is, we can never separate faith and works to say, um, and that's what James talks about, you know, to say someone, well, you've got the faith, you've got the knowledge doctrine thing down, but uh, it's okay that you don't have the works. I'll do the good works, you do the faith part. No, faith must Uh, result in a life of good works. Faith is the root that goes down into the soil of Christ, that as we take up that nourishment through the means of grace, through the word of God, listening to the preaching of the word of God, meditating on the word of God, and then in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God, it's like the, the Holy Spirit works like sap, taking up the nutrients from the soil of the word out into our lives that we can grow and have lives that produce fruit. That's what Christ wanted for his disciples in John 15. He says, this is my will, that you bear fruit, and that your fruit remains. That's what Christ is seeking in his disciples, fruitful lives. And so we ought to be careful to devote ourselves to good works, to devote ourselves to living in the way of Christ, to walk in his footsteps. So that's what I wanted to say about just more tracing that theme of sound doctrine and sound living in the book of Titus. And now I want to just jump and look at a couple things just in verse uh, 3 and 4. 
uh, in talking about specifically, I want to look at this idea of the mystery. So in verse 3, Paul says that uh, the promise of the gospel was, uh, it, it was promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted, right? So the gospel was um, in types and shadows in the Old Testament, but in Jesus, the lights come on and it's clearly revealed. And Paul talks about this throughout his letters, this idea of the mystery, that the gospel of Jesus was mysterious. And I just want us to look at a few passages that talk about this gospel mystery to understand what it is Paul's talking about when he says that it's now been manifested or revealed through preaching. Uh, The first passage I want to look at is Romans 16. Um, It's a doxology, and here's what Paul says. Uh, now to in Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. So he's saying this mystery was kept secret, but it's been disclosed through the writings of scripture, been made known to all nations. And the purpose of the revelation of the gospel and preaching of Christ is to bring about not mere faith, but the obedience of faith. Again, that connection of um, doctrine with uh, godliness. It's the faith that produces obedience. Okay, more specifically, Colossians 1, uh, 24 to the end, uh, Paul's talking about that he's a minister according to the stewardship from God. That's similar to what we see in Titus, that this preaching's been entrusted to him. He says, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And this is Colossians 1, 26. He says this is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It's been revealed to the church. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, right? That's part of it. It's not just Jews now, it's Gentiles. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Okay, so this mystery that's been revealed is rich and glorious. And here it is simply stated, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that this glory that's been held out and, and the hope of eternal life with God, uh, this resurrection life, which is barely hinted at in the Old Testament, um, it comes by way of Christ in us. And so it's by faith that we attain a union with Christ, where God sees Christ's righteousness over us, we're covered in him, we're accounted righteous in him. It's through having Christ in us, being united with him by faith, that we have the hope of glory. What in, he was saying in Titus, the hope of eternal life and an eternal glorious life, a life beholding the glory of Christ, entering into that glory with him. And so Paul says in verse 28 that him we proclaim. That's the message. Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says we proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Right? So it's not just get them in the door of faith, but to see faith come to maturity in a life of good works and godliness. And Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that works powerfully in me. 
the primary passage where this idea of the mystery is talked about is in Ephesians 3. This is the longest kind of diatribe Paul gives in talking about this mystery. And I'll just point out a few things here. He says in verse 3 of Ephesians 3 that this mystery was made known to me by revelation. Uh, it's the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Remember, apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and to them has been revealed the mystery of Christ. And it's interesting, in verse 6, this is what he says the mystery is. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, with the Jews, that is, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if you remember that promise to Abraham that through him the nations would be blessed, and it was never known, how, would God, how is God going to bless the Gentiles? And these prophecies in the Old Testament about the nations flowing to the mount of the Lord, how was this going to happen? Well, the mystery is that through Christ, the Gentiles become partakers of the same body. They're part of the church of God, and they get engrafted into the people of God through the work of Christ. Paul says, I've been made a minister of this, uh, though the least of saints been given grace, verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what he's talking about, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone. What's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose. Remember, before the ages began, the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom, remember, by faith, union with Christ, in whom we have boldness and access, that is, to God, with confidence through our faith in him. So that is, everyone through faith in Christ can have bold access to God as Hebrews forces to come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. This is the mystery Paul preaches, this mystery he says has, that's been entrusted to him to preach in Titus. The mystery that through Christ, God's redemptive work is coming to um, a climactic fullness, that the nations now can come and experience the faith of Christ, that the gospel is going to spread, no longer limited to one people, and going to bring about just a great hope of glory throughout the world. That's the mystery. Okay, verse 4 in Titus, a couple things here. He says, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. And just beautiful to note Paul's familial affection, and just a reminder to us that we ought to consider um, our fellow church members as brothers and sisters, as truly a family. And it's a family more real than even our physical families. And that's something that we ought to reflect on, to stir up in ourselves, to truly feel that family affection in the church. But just, I love how he mentions my true child in a common faith. Paul grew up a Jew. Titus grew up a Gentile. But they have a common faith. You know, this is part of the mystery that one like Titus, um, Paul it made a big statement that in Galatians that Titus didn't need to be circumcised to be right with God. No longer do the Gentiles need to keep the Jewish rituals, but both need to trust in Christ. And this common faith that makes us family with people so unlike ourselves, they had such a different upbringing and culture. They were Jew and Gentile. And so when we consider ourselves 
uh, what culture we grew up in. There's other cultures in this nation, other nations, other people groups, other languages, other ethnicities, other skin colors, other economic statuses, other um, family compositions. The gospel is a common faith. It's common to all. No one gets a better gospel than anyone else. And we rejoice in how this gospel makes us family and gives us um, what we could say is a provocative unity. A unity unity that should look so unlike the unity in the world that it should be astounding. And we really need to, we have a long ways to go here. Um, I remember hearing uh, someone talking about a study recently that was showing that um, often in America that Christians have far more in common with unbelievers who have the same political persuasions as them than they do with believers who might have different political persuasions. And just this ought not be so. The, uh, what we have in common in the gospel, in our connection up to Christ and the teachings of scripture, that ought to be such a more profound place of unity than even our political or economic um, ideas. The, the gospel ought to be a uniting force where we're united in seeking to see God's kingdom come, his will be done, to love our neighbors, to see the lost be found, to see God's churches filled, that everyone would come to know God. We do have a common faith. And lastly here, he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Um, he uses grace and peace here as a combination of, of a unified sort of uh, Jew and Gentile greeting. The common greeting in the Greek speaking time was um, kerai. And uh, Paul switched that to be charis, which means grace. So he took this well wish and just added, added a Christian spin on it to say grace and peace. That was the Jewish greeting, shalom, they would say. And so, again, in this idea of unity, Jew and Gentile together, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ our Savior. And I was thinking, you know, it's interesting, he takes a cultural convention, this greeting, uh, Karai, and just changes it slightly, just in order to um, remind the recipients that we're unique, we're a called, we're a set-apart people in the church. And I was just thinking, you know, some ways that often we see this done is even in, like, our email send-offs, how people might send off, you know, um, in Christ, JC, or blessings, JC. And just... Let's think what sort of little things can we do that just uh, take our cultural conventions but can just bring God into it, um, not in a cheesy way, like, you know, those Christian t-shirts that kind of copy secular brands with a Christian spin. No, not, not like that, but just how do we infuse our religious worldview into everything of life? Even simple things like following the instruction of James to say, yeah, like, you know, Lord willing, I'll go on this va- vacation this summer. How do we just bring that in um, to our everyday speech? And uh, at, when he talks about grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior, uh, I just wanted to point out, it, it mentions Jesus Christ our Savior. And this idea of our Savior pops up six times in the book of Titus. But interestingly, three times it says Jesus our Savior. So three times it refers to Christ, and three times it says God our Savior. And uh, the term God, when used in the epistles, almost always refers to the Father. So sometimes it refers to God the Savior three times, three times Jesus the Savior, which is just, again, um, enforcing the fact that Christ is God, uh, the deity of Christ, that he is one with the Father, that he is the Savior, 
and God the Father is the Savior. Because uh, God the Father, he planned the work of salvation. He intended it, and Christ fulfilled and accomplished it. The Holy Spirit applies it. The works of the Trinity, we say, are indivisible. And though we attribute certain elements to each, um, all of the Godhead is involved in our salvation. So salvation is not just of Christ, it's also of God the Father. Uh, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So that, that's all I had um, in this sermon extra. I hope some of this helped bring out a little more fullness to you. Um, I'll see about doing some more of these in the future as we keep going through the book of Titus. Uh, this upcoming Lord's Day, we'll be looking morning and evening at the rest of chapter 1, looking in the morning at the uh, qualifications for elders, the godly leadership Paul wants to see set up in the church in Crete. And then in the evening, um, the description of the ungodly leadership, that Judaizing. So uh, we'll be seeing kind of the two sides of the leadership coin, the good side and the ugly side. So that's coming up this upcoming week. Anyways, this is the podcast extra on uh, the introduction to Titus 1. Hope you are blessed and uh, go with God today and look to him in all things. Take care.